Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's Politics Podcast. I'm legislative reporter Emma Graney and I'm your host for today's Keep On Truckin' edition. Um, maybe I'll be the host forever. I don't know. We hope so. Well, lucky you if I am. Sarah has hopefully handed over the reins <laughs> and the, the power of the Press Gallery podcast. I apologise in advance, Alberta. Um, anyway, it's Friday, August 5, and today with me in the Edmonton Journal studio, I have opinion page editor Sarah O'Donnell. Who's That's happy me. To... Good morning. <laughs> look how happy you sound and look oh, right now. so happy to be on this side of the table. <laughs> City Commons, Paula side. Simon. Good day. <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> and legislative columnist Graham Thompson. Good morning. Hello. Uh, so it's been a short week this week. Thank you, Heritage Day. Is that what the vacation was, Heritage Day? Yes, yes. ma'am. Welcome to Alberta. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> anyway, but there's been plenty of time for some politicking. So we're going to be chatting about those pesky power purchase arrangements. Jason Kenny getting in his truck to unite the rat. Uh, that's my... I like the truck. Alberta. I'll start with that. Oh, thank you. Okay. And we're going to take a quick look at Tobacco Gate as well, which uh, harking back to quite some number of years ago, but little development there as well. First, though, some sad news with the passing of Mel Herdig, who died Wednesday night at the age 84. Paula, you wrote a beautiful little piece. Tell us about tell us about Mel. Well, Mel Herdig was a really authentic Edmonton character. He was a publisher. He was a pundit. He was a politician. He was a polemicist. Uh, he was uh, one of the founders of the Council of Canadians, a really fierce economic nationalist. But I think... Uh, what I remember him best for is his work as a publisher and as the creator of the Canadian Encyclopedia, somebody who really put Edmonton on the map as a place that mattered in Canadian cultural life. But for politicians and, and politics watchers, uh, he was, uh, I, you know, somebody said to me today, oh, he was like the Donald Trump of his era. And I said, well, that's a little unfair, but he certainly was uh, a trade protectionist, a fierce opponent of the free trade agreement with the United States and of NAFTA, uh, somebody who really sounded a political alarm about the role of America, not just in our cultural, but in our economic and political life. And uh, I think he leaves a, a more important cultural legacy than a political one but he was always somebody who brought the joy of political debate to the table. So even when you didn't agree with him, he was always really happy to engage you in that kind of very passionate discussion. And I, I'd agree uh, with everything that um, Paula said. To me, the biggest thing he did, at least um, he did a lot of things, but was that Canadian Encyclopedia. That was such a great thing. You know, Emma's keeping this look like, what the heck's that? Um, it's true, I was. Well, and encyclopedias are these books that used to <laughs> exist that were full of information. And this was based, it was focused on Canada. It was a it was set great. of three when it first started out, and this helped me immensely in my high school research, because instead of having to go root through the library all the time, I could crack open the Canadian Encyclopedia, and there it was, everything I needed to know and about. This, and, and this was really revolutionary, because mm -hmm. when I was growing up, A to Z, my no. dear, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Herdig would want you to say A to Z, uh, but, you know, when I, when I grew up, there was, you know, the World Book, and there was the Encyclopedia Britannica, and if you wanted to know about Canada, it literally didn't exist. So what was revolutionary about Herdig's Encyclopedia wasn't just that it gave Canada the dignity of having its own national reference book, mm -hmm. but that he did it from Edmonton. And I think that's really important at a time when the national political uh, focal point uh, was very much Toronto, uh, Montreal, that sort of... Uh, old stock Canadian, you know, upper and lower Canada world. 
Hertig proved that you could create a major national cultural institution entrepreneurially in Edmonton, and I think he had a fair bit of help from the Lougheed government of the day in doing that. It was a time very much when Alberta's government felt that it needed to take a national leadership role, and uh, you know, with with help of the Alberta government, uh, that's one of the reasons that that Herdick was able to thrive as a publisher. I think some of his ideas, though, still do resonate today. Uh, I was looking back through some of the pieces that he had written or, or, and to see what we had published from him over the years. And there's a chapter that we ran of his book from 1991, The Betrayal of Canada. And although the characters involved, he's talking about Brian Mulrooney as, as the villain in, in, in this narrative, the broader ideas he had about protecting Canadian identity and that sort of thing, they still actually ring true 25 years later. So it's, we may, we're thinking about republishing that chapter as, you know, something just to, for people to read and, and think about okay. some of his ideas. He was also a very ferocious critic of the Klein Revolution. Um, one of his books, I want to make sure I get the title right, was Pay the Rent or Feed the Kids. And so he was uh, a social progressive in the sense of really worrying about the impact of economic changes that the government of, of the Klein era had made on the lives of ordinary working Albertans. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking back to when I first began reporting here, and I would interview him as, as the pundit. Oh, <laughs> he, he appears as a pundit I'm, in I'm, so he, many he, stories. He, he had a very clear uh, view, as Paul has pointed out, opposing a lot of the, um, the governments of the day. And it was also, he was somebody who was very fiercely, proudly Canadian. At a time when, but even now, Canadians have a hard time saying how proud they are of being Canadian, and he had no difficulty uh, promoting himself in many different levels, but as a fiercely <laughs> pr proud Canadian. There was a great line that our former colleague Alan Kellogg had used in a profile he wrote of Mel Herdig in 1996, where he quoted somebody as saying, he puts the me in Mel. <laughs> and I think that was very much true. I mean, he was a real showman. Uh, he, he knew how to argue for his point of view and to promote his point of view, and he had a real personal charisma, and I think that made a difference, too. I mean, he wasn't your typical tweedy public intellectual. Uh, he had a sort of a really puckish uh, sense of, of what he wanted to accomplish. And, you know, politically, as a candidate for the National Party, he never won office, but I think he really held politicians' feet to the fire, and even though I really disagreed with him about pretty much all of his economic ideas, I think he's one of the reasons, in fact, that after I did my graduate work in the United States, I came back and decided to make my career in Edmonton, because he was somebody who stood as an example that you could be from here and still make a difference. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a, ma a man I'd never heard of until a couple of nights ago. <laughs> I'm sorry, Canada, but um, <laughs> I feel like now I've really missed somebody. Yeah, he was... Uh, he was Quite the guy. Edmonton character, Quite for sure. Fellow. Quite the fellow. Um, just moving to PPAs now. Those beautiful power purchase arrangements. I wonder what Mel would have had to say yeah. about this. <laughs> right. I bet we could look up and see what he did say about this. Do you think he might be turning in his grave right now? I don't know. Well, he'd, he'd be unhappy that mm. Albertans were potentially being handed some expenses that perhaps they shouldn't be. <laughs> so, so, Graham, an update on these guys. They just keep on keeping on, don't they? I've been looking for these regs, by the way. They're yeah, they are. The thing is, you know, I'm, I'm really torn on this one because I ha think the NDPs handled it really badly um, because they did seem to be caught off guard completely on this. People are saying they lied about it. I don't, I don't know if they've lied, but they really do look incompetent on this file. Like, like they're building a case for their legal fight 
after the fact that they realize that they've missed something here with the PPAs being handed back by the power companies. We should say, for those of, us, yeah, for those of you joining oh, us after sorry. who didn't listen yeah. last week, these are the power purchase arrangements. These are the sweetheart deals that were given to the power generators here that allowed them to hand back their contracts if the government ever did anything, in theory, that made them less profitable. Or more, more unprofitable. unprofitable. Yes, yeah. more <laughs> unprofitable. <laughs> must, which, which is important because if it's just make them unprofitable, if they were already unprofitable, they couldn't hand them back. By making them more unprofitable, they could hand them back at a time like net, right now when they are unprofitable. Right. Uh, but the thing is, so, you know, but I covered back in 2000 when Ralph Klein was the uh, premier and um, Mike Cardinal was the minister responsible for this. Oh well, gracious, I'd forgotten that. Exactly. So you go back to deregulation in 2000. Klein could not explain it. Now, and Mike Cardinal certainly couldn't. He, couldn't. he was a very weak minister. He, he would come to the, to the editorial boards. This is before the 2001 election to explain it. He couldn't explain it. He didn't come alone. He came with Dave Hancock, who was there to help explain it because the minister couldn't explain the power deregulation. And that's what's happening now is that the NDP is saying things were, were, still, were, were so murky even now, they didn't understand what was actually happening. I have some sympathy for that because back in 2000, the way the government put through power deregulation was so convoluted and difficult to understand to the point the premier at one point threw up his hands and said, I don't understand any of these things. And he did it in our editorial board. And <laughs> that to me speaks to the issue of this is really comp uh, complicated. But the interesting thing is how the companies are fighting back and how the NDP government uh, uh, caught off guard. And the question is, how did they get caught off guard? Didn't they get good advice from the civil servants? Did the civil servants miss this? Are they misleading people? You'd expect this to come out perhaps in the lawsuit if it actually gets to that point where people are being called to testify. Will we actually learn the truth about this? And I'm fascinated to, to learn if we, this goes to court, people are called to testify to actually see what actually comes out of this. Because, you know, the issue is, even if it was a bad deal, even if the conservative government, as the NDP are now alleging, hid this from the people of Alberta, it's a deal nonetheless. And those companies entered into those power purchase arrangements. Mm -hmm. They understood what the rules were, even if nobody else did. So even if this government inherited, as they allege, bad law. It was the law when those contracts were signed. And Emma, I actually have a question for you because you were writing about this this week. It oh doesn't oh, oh, I don't want to be in the question asking chair anymore. No, but I think she's in a better position to explain this than me. I mean, I can quote her story all I want, but it's not... When this first came up a few weeks ago when the NDP announced, say, we're going to file this legal action, it almost seemed like they hadn't realized it. But then when you were rooting through the transcripts of the ledge from the past few months, it actually seems from some of their answers to questions from the opposition that they did know that there was a problem. They absolutely did. Yeah, On March 17th, uh, the Energy Minister, McCaig Boyd, who I must note has not opened her mouth once about this entire file, uh, I suspect she's on vacation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I said last week, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so back in March 17th, she said there is a, quote, huge loophole in these agreements uh, that we are looking into right now. Um, it was only a few days later, I believe it was April 4, April 9, when um, Brian Jean actually brought these up in question period. He specifically brought up PPAs to Rachel Notley, and she said... Um, there is something bad. We need to protect the people of Alberta here. And so 
already the machine had started working. Already people had started kind of referring vaguely to this lawsuit. They didn't say there will be a lawsuit until probably the next month, um, I believe it was in May, when McCabe Boyd got up in a committee meeting and said, yep, we're going to um, be protecting all the interests of Albertans here. And even her language then became very clear just by reading the transcripts that they'd already decided that they were going to take this to court. And that was, that was a number of months ago. But it's fascinating. You can only really see in retrospect the subtext of what they were mm-hmm. saying. That's yeah. what I thought I was, was really interesting then. about that piece. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it is, it is interesting. It has been floating around for quite some time, this kind of notion that they were going to take this to court. Yeah. But I, I still think the complete absence of McQuaig Boyd from this file is very, mm-hmm. per, I guess it's not perplexing, but it, I think it's worrisome because you know, we you know, we just finished talking, Graham and I, about how a weak energy minister got us into this position in the first place. In this province, you need to have a strong energy minister who understands the file. And um, Sarah Hoffman is quite busy being the health minister and the deputy premier. She can't be the minister responsible for everything. The thing is, they brought this out last week when the premier's away on vacation. Yep. yep. Right? And you got to wonder, they could have done this whenever they wanted to do it. It wasn't as if they had to announce the lawsuit on a given day. They chose a time. It's August, the end of July into August. It's quiet. The premier's away. You're thinking maybe they're hoping that things will get you know, just swept aside. There's so many questions about this. And going back to uh, Paula's point about this was a contract. Maybe you didn't like the contract. It's like it's the government signed it, and they're actually suing themselves. They're suing the old PC government of 2000. But it, this is a question raised by the opposition back in March, April, is um, if people walk away from the PPAs, if, if people are actually, if the government doesn't like what they're doing and tries to, in a sense, renegotiate that contract from 2000, then how can businesses trust them moving forward? Mm. And the government needs these power companies on board when it comes to the climate change plan to get them to actually uh, build, distribute, invest in green energy. And so how will these companies feel? Uh, In fact, I know how they feel. I've talked to them off the record. Um, They're very dismayed thinking, if this government wants to, to, to renege on contracts? How can we trust them moving forward when they need us on board to help them with their climate change plan? They they seem to be arguing the secret part of it. That seems to be that something was done inappropriately, that that the law was not followed to a T in adding this part to the regulations. So I guess that would be the issue they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and uh, Wild, Wild Roses come, uh, you know, the people from Wild Rose are kind of saying, well, this is just like Venezuela. They can't cancel government contracts. Should we be m- like Venezuela? I'm sure that's a fair comparison, but... No, I'd probably no, probably not. That to- might be a little little over the over yeah. the top. Totally, yeah. totally different climate. But it is but it is important to note, you know, as we're about to segue into Jason Kenney's truck tour, uh, you know, as Jason Kenney goes around the province trying to evoke the spirit of Ralph Klein and saying that he's the second coming of Ralph Klein and wasn't Ralph Klein wonderful and I will bring you back the days of Ralph Klein. The days of Ralph Klein uh, are what got us into this mess in the first place. So let us please, uh, the hagiography that implies that, uh, you know, if only Ralph Klein were premier, we'd all be fine, uh, is a misreading of history. And you go back, and you go back, and and, uh, (laughs) Kenny was one who was very critical of Klein in the day. Because Kenny was part of the Taxpayers Federation, while he was the spokesman for it. And he was very critical of Klein back 
in the day when crime was premier. So it's interesting how politicians can polish the <laughs> the past to reflect whatever they want it to reflect. Take out their time turners and go back. Don't you think that our opinions also change, though, as we age? The way we saw something 20 years ago, we may look back now and go, oh, that was actually wasn't so bad. You know, time, you get smarter as you get older, right? <laughs> speak all, speak not to me, yourself. Not yet. <laughs> we all change, that's true. Um, well, that was a nice way to Jason Kenny, wasn't it? <laughs> It, it absolutely, was. it's like oh it's like we, knew what we Graham's done this before. Um, yeah, so Jason Kenny in his truck, his big blue truck, trucking around Alberta right now. Do we think this is what, wearing a blazer? I gotta say, <laughs> but, but, but he announced it. Well, I, I wasn't actually there. I guess I was on vacation. But um, when I saw the video, and he's driving this pickup truck, like you know, he's a good old country boy, I guess he's wearing like he's wearing a blazer. I uh, think that's Alberta. That is Alberta right there. Well. I, I think we could debate the merits of whether he should be driving a Ford F-150. I mean, he's in a Dodge 1500, but I i mean, I personally would be more interested in his, what he had to say if he was driving a Ford. I'm sure Mel Hurdy would be very upset to know that he's driving around in a car made in Mexico. <laughs> but I'm just kidding, by the way. Obviously, the truck is not the most important part of the policy. Actually, actually you're policy not. <laughs> 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 That's the sad thing. Is you're thinking, why is not a Ford... F-150. Yeah, the, the well, official truck of Alberta. Yeah. yeah. Is this going to actually work? He's, he's going to these small towns. He's going up north right now. He's up north this week, and then he's going to head down south next week, and well, then I mean, Central Alberta the week after. It is a good thing for any politician who wants to run to be the premier of Alberta to travel the province to see how different it is north to south to meet people. I mean, that's the reason that Brian Jean is also driving around the province this week. <laughs> that uh, would be an awkward stop at the Tim Hortons drive-thru, wouldn't it? Yeah, so... You know, I mean, it's not a bad, it is a time-honored thing to get out and meet the people. This is what politicians do. How Jason Kenney's tour around Alberta is any different uh, demonstrably than Brian Jean's tour around Alberta or Rachel Notley touring around Alberta. Uh, I'd be curious. I'm sorry, you know, I can't teleport to wherever he is and see what it's like when he shows up in Vermilion and see what it's like when he shows up in, in small towns, the kind of greeting he's getting, because does he read as an authentic Albertan? That's the question. I mean, he has no ties to Northern Alberta, where Gene and Notley do, having both been born and raised in Northern Alberta. Uh, I'm not sure that Kenny, who's you know originally from Ontario and then Calgary and then Ottawa, when he gets out of the truck, no matter how he's dressed, do people greet him as you know, a returning conquering hero, or is a guy from away who is, you know, who, he didn't come back for you. He didn't come you. back for you. Uh, this is a bit like Prentice did the same thing. Prentice, Jim Prentice, he was a premier in Alberta a few years ago. Um, I'm just telling Emma this, and I'm not trying to be, <laughs> I'm just, I'm making I sure. I heard of him. Yeah, you have heard of him. <laughs> and up here, I'm sounding condescending, and I apologize for that. But he actually, when he came back again from Ottawa, a uh, federal MP, he did the tour of Alberta. Now, he kept saying he had uh, grown up in Grand Cache. He's actually from Ontario, and he went to his high school in Grand Cache. He worked in the coal mines, actually above the coal mines. Um, <laughs> you can just say, let's just say that you can be born in Ontario and still feel like you're from Alberta. Absolutely. If you hear long Sarah, enough. Born in Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> Says Graham, born in Ontario. No, I'm, uh, hey. Oh, oh where, were you born in Scotland? I was born in Scotland. Oh, okay. So there. Um, immigrants. Immigrants. They get the yeah. job done. Am I right? Still jobs like nobody's business. But I would just like to say I was born in Edmonton oh, at the Royal grief. Alexandra Hospital. And so there you are. I Thank you, podcast listeners. May we I see your authentic. birth certificate, You can please. see my long-form birth certificate. You can, you can see my mother. You can see but everybody. I, I think Kenny is smart to be doing this. I mean, he has grabbed the 
attention of everybody. He's the first person to officially declare for the progressive conservative leadership, right? I, I think it's smart. You don't want to be doing this in like January. It's too darn cold. You want to be out there right now and starting to work on building fundraising, all that sort of thing. I and, think it's and very, brilliant. And very convenient to do it while he's still on the federal payroll drawing his salary as an MP. So what better way to finance your campaign than on the backs of Canadian taxpayers? Well, that's, you know. And also the question is who's actually funding him right now as, uh, as well as an issue that has to come up later on is to show us the book, who's, who's been funding you during this gray area where the election uh, leadership race hasn't been called yet. But going back to... Um, why he's doing it? Well, he's trying to get his name out there, and people will look at this and say, you know, you're from Calgary, you're from Ontario, you've, you're an MP from Calgary, and you spend most of your time in Ottawa. What do you know about Alberta? I think actually he did mispronounce one of the names of the towns he was going to. Yeah, he said White Fork instead of White something else. Yeah, I think he meant White Court or, or Westlock. I think oh, he called, yeah. yeah, so I think that... Um, you can tell I'm not from Alberta, can't you? <laughs> um, and I wasn't there. I heard people were criticizing him for it, and I think this is a way we for him to try and get out there. We can all misspeak. That's kind yeah. of a nitpicky No, but thing. people are saying he doesn't yeah. understand Alberta, and this is an example. I'm not saying it's legitimate. I'm saying that people will be jumping all over him whose critics saying he doesn't understand Alberta. But, of course, the bigger issue here for him is how does he actually then build a machine to take over the PC party. He was hoping to have the old rules where it's one person, one vote. You go out to the public, you sell them PC memberships, they join the party because they like you, and then they vote for you to become the leader of the PCs, and you become, back in the day, the premier. Uh, it's more difficult now because it's based on a delegate convention where each riding association picks 15 delegates who are then sent to the convention in March. It's more difficult for him to try and take control of the party. So he's going to go up there and talk to all the, hopefully, as many PCs as he and can. he's a hell of a retail politician. I mean, let it be said, having just made fun of him for still drawing his federal salary, that the reason that he was such an effective cabinet minister is that he's great one-on-one. -on -one. He's funny. He's charming. Um, getting out there and introducing himself to people is is smart politics. Is it going to be enough, though, as Graham says? Because it's not just enough to meet people in the coffee shop and have a piece of Saskatoon pie with them. It's also a question of can you convince a PC machine that it wants to retool for you when your official agenda is to shut down the machine. Absolutely. So you get the people out there right now working for the PC party, the ones who are diehard true PCers who don't want the party to disappear. So again, you just, you just can't go into a coffee shop and say, buy a membership, vote for me. You have to say, get involved in the PC party, join the party, go to the, the, the meetings and in a sense take over the, uh, the party, uh, the, the local constituency associations. It's a lot more difficult for him, but having said all that, he has to start somewhere, and he's also a really hard worker. Mm -hmm. This is a reputation he has that he lives, breathes, eats, lives and dies politics. And this is a guy who would likely be spending his time traveling and talking to people on the political circuit anyway. Everything you needed to know about Everything. the Jason Penney <laughs> truck tour. <laughs> yeah. um, so briefly, tobacco gate. Why do we add gate to the end of everything? Anyway. That's irrelevant. Speaking of ancient history. Well, oh, yeah, man. and it's come up again this week, though, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It, it has. absolutely has. Just briefly, anyone want to want to walk us through what's happened here? All right, back at the dawn of time, the Alberta government. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no. It wasn't the dawn 20, of time. 2010. I'm sorry. 2010. 2010. I was in really, Canada then. It is it really only 2010? All right, yes, so it was 2010. The Alberta government decided it wanted to do what many, many other states and provinces had done, and that's to sue the tobacco company for the damage done by cigarettes. $10 billion lawsuit. So it was a major lawsuit. Whoever won the lawsuit was going to get 
that's a nice that's a nice potential chunk of change. So there was a competition for who which law firm should be awarded the contract. The contract went to a law firm where Alison Redford's ex-husband happened to be a partner. So then the question became, was that the best law firm? Had Alison Redford interfered inappropriately at the time she was justice minister to make sure that her ex-husband's law firm was awarded the contractor were their superior firms with more expertise in this field. And this has been the subject of any number of, you know, uh, questions, inquiries, investigations to see whether Redford interfered in a way that was inappropriate and whether in fact it is a conflict of interest if she did interfere uh, it does your ex-husband's law firm uh, so if he got the contract there's no benefit to her financially or personally uh, is that actually a conflict of interest under Alberta's conflict of interest laws well and even the, if she at, did do anything and at the time so there was an investigation by ethics commissioner Neil Wilkinson and she was cleared in 2013 it was found that uh, he, he found that it was not every every it was done appropriately now documents came to light CBC's reporting found that in fact that Neil Wilkinson had not been given all of the information and so that was a question that was put to uh, former Supreme Court Justice Frank Iacobucci by the NDP government when they came into power uh, as to whether he did have all the relevant information and whether this investigation needed to be reopened he recommended that in fact it did need to be reopened now the issue is that Alberta's own ethics commissioner has had to recuse herself from this because she is friends with two of the people involved, according to uh, a letter she wrote to the justice minister in April. So all of this has been handed over to the BC Conflict of Interest Commissioner Paul Fraser, and he is now going to re-examine this whole issue. But I will note that he said he's going to re-examine it with the information uh, regarding these, because briefing documents have been changed apparently before they were given to Redford. He also told, so we're going to redo this, but he seemed to say in his letter to the justice minister that the result could very well end up being exactly the same. Yes, he did. He said, yeah, he said, just because I'm finding that I'm going to reinvestigate it mm -hmm. doesn't mean that she's done anything wrong. It just means that I'm going to have another good old healthy mm -hmm. look. Yeah. And the thing is, at the end of the day, what does it all mean? Because exactly. Where do, where do we go from here? Well, I'll I mean, say if, if, if she was still premier, that this would be a big issue. She's not. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the issue is, A, if they find nothing, which is a real possibility, as Sarah just pointed out, then it, the case goes nowhere. But let's say they did find something. Well, what does it really mean then? Because she's no longer premier. So if she's you know, called to atone for this or punished for it somehow, um, but what does that really mean for Alberta politics? Uh, because the PCs have been really careful to distance themselves a long time ago from her. So it, it kind of lands on her shoulders. Does it actually then affect the PCs? Does it affect anybody else besides... Alison Redford. Well, I mean, does it in fact affect the New Democrats if it makes them look, even though I don't think they had any choice politically, but does it make them look malicious that they're going after somebody who's already been driven out of politics? Because really there are two questions here, as I say. One is, she's already faced the ultimate punishment for a politician. These allegations were part and parcel of the whole reason that she was pushed from office in the first place. So, I mean, she's been sent into political exile. Her political career is over. She's paid the price that politicians pay when there are allegations of malfeasance. But then there's a whole other question about the nature of our ethics rules, because it's one thing for a politician to allegedly interfere to push a contract in the direction of an old friend. But helping out an old friend, even if that's your ex-husband, isn't actually 
in the ethics rules. The ethics rules no, say ex-spouses conf- were not covered. Yeah, a, a conflict of interest is when you do something that enriches a family member or yourself by proxy. Um, and you know, an ex-husband. Now, admittedly, Redford and her ex are are, are known to have a, a better relationship than a lot of people are with their exes. Yes, he was her political advisor yeah. when she transitioned to yeah. be premier. But, you know, do you set a rule that says that people can't, you know, I mean, most people don't, aren't that cozy with their exes. I think long term, the lesson may be, more, whatever comes out of this, the lesson may be more for the people who are in jobs supporting a minister, actually, because you can't be giving them partial information or changing information on them I, I think that may be the lesson ultimately like because as you said there's not necessarily a political price that's going to be paid by anybody at this point but there may be lessons to learn about making sure that you're very clear about the advice you're giving to somebody in a way that doesn't come back to haunt them in the future yeah meantime the wild rose are still flogging the horse that they want a criminal investigation and they want criminal charges Alberta Justice was pretty clear in April that they are not going to be forwarding this to the RCMP. Going back to your point, Paula, about uh, does this this reflect badly on the NDP trying to um, attack a defeated and former politician? Well, they're going to court to sue (laughs) the the old Klein government from 2000 for this contract. They they have no problem at all putting the finger back (laughs) by saying these are the guys you didn't want as government the old crooked end of PCs, now the NDPs in government were doing a better job. So I think that um, they have no problem trying to besmirch the reputation of the PC government going back as far as they possibly can. And on that fun note, <laughs> let's go to good stuff from the gallery. Uh, Sarah. Oh, I, all right. I get to start. That's, yeah, you do. That's exciting news. Okay, so I want to recommend something. I've been kind of in love with the New York Times' opinion section lately. I am really interested to see all the things they're doing digitally. But I want to recommend a piece of reading uh, that was from Linda Greenhouse, and it's tied to Hillary Clinton's uh, historic nomination as the first female uh, nominee for a major political party. This is about when Sandra Day O'Connor broke into the men's club, and it talks about her uh, being Sandra Day O'Connor being appointed as the first uh, woman Supreme Court justice in the United States, and what a huge uh, break through the glass ceiling that was, and how significant it was. So I just thought it kind of made me think back that that was, gosh, it was it was a while ago, but uh, it, it made me think more about glass ceilings and things that still have to be broken. I cannot stand to recommend anything that has to do with anybody whose name rhymes with bump or dump. So I, instead, of, <laughs> instead of recommending anything that has or to do... Or Richard Stump's book on... Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. So uh, in honor of, of Mel Hurtig, I'm going to recommend a book by a Canadian novelist whose work I've been enjoying, Alyssa York. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing her in the fall when she's here for the... Uh, uh, for one of the literary festivals about her new book, The Naturalist. But I have been reading her backlist so that I'm prepared to talk to her. And so I want to recommend a book she published in 2007, which was shortlisted for the Giller Prize called Effigy, which is about the Mormon settlement of Utah, even though she's a, a writer from Winnipeg. Um, it's about the civil wars that went on within the settlement of Utah, the massacres committed both by non-Mormons against Mormons, and in this book more particularly, uh, it, it's, uh, it focuses around the Mountain Meadows Massacre in which Mormons massacred non-Mormons who were entering the Utah territories. I knew nothing about this history, how violent it was, how cataclysmic it was, 
and the resonances that it still has today. And this is a terrific book. I'm almost done. It's called Effigy by Alyssa York, published by Vintage and shortlisted for the 2007 Giller. Now, I don't know what's happened here because I've also been reading a book about slaughtering slaughters, which is... Not the new Harry Potter book? Not the new Harry Potter book. Not the PPAs? No. No. (laughs) Lols. Uh, no, it's called Shake Hands with the Devil, The Failure of Humanity oh. in Rwanda, about the Rwandan yes. genocide. I didn't know much about the Rwandan genocide, and my one of my reading challenges this year challenged me to read a book I didn't know an awful lot about a culture, so I chose that one, and it's quite the read so far. I'm sure it's I'll a recommend very good it. It's not, a, it's not a light read by any means, but Graham, anything this week? Yeah, I'm actually going to recommend uh, Paula's piece this morning on Mel Hurtig. Yeah, it was great. It was. Um, it took me back because I, I'd really forgotten about the things he had done when I first came to Alberta, he was a real icon in Alberta politics and culture and everything else. And he sort of faded out because he's getting older. Things have changed. He went, to, I guess, to the West Coast. Yeah, I think he went to Vancouver just a couple <coughs> of years ago. And he had a really neat house in the River Valley. He had this fantastic log cabin yeah. right above the Victoria Golf Course. It was amazing. It was a log cabin in, surrounded by high-rises. It was really quite cool. Beautiful. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's a piece that Paula wrote and um, about Hel- Hertig and his importance to Canada and Alberta, and I thought it was really as well done as usual, but also because I actually explained the people who didn't know him or have forgotten him. Did you were 20 or something? <laughs> like, what is going on this morning? <laughs> Suddenly I'm on this side of the table, you're being all nice to her. <laughs> I'm always nice to her. It's on that side of the table, you somehow have a filter <laughs> that sees everything in a very negative light. So I think this was a really good piece um, to explain you. who her to was and why he was important to you liked her k-days column too what is going on well on that happy note paula paula's awesome um that's it for this week so thank you graham paula and sarah for joining me and sean butts thanks mate for uh filming some of this insightful conversation so we can throw up a clip or two online thanks mate edmontonjournal.com you can find all our episodes there uh you can also subscribe to the edmonton journal soundcloud feed through itunes and TuneIn radio so we'll see you next week in the press gallery Thank you.